Hello, and welcome back to another disjointed episode of Rock and Roll History, the podcast where we stage dive headfirst in all the hits, misses, and often overlooked songs and stories throughout the history of rock and roll. I'm your host, Papa Smurf. But who cares? Come on, everybody, let's go rock and roll! Today's episode takes place in 1963. The swing 60s hadn't quite kicked off yet, and the Beatles haven't even played on the Ed Sullivan Show. A lot was going on in the baseball world in 1963. The one-year-old New York Mets had just purchased future Hall of Fame outfielder Duke Snyder from the Los Angeles Dodgers for a whopping $40,000, as the New York Yankees signed Mickey Mantle to an even more whopping and earth-shattering $100,000 deal. This was all going down at the same time that Hopefully one day soon, future Hall of Fame infielder Pete Rose was making his debut for the Cincinnati Reds. Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell were dominating the NBA as The Outer Limits was making its television debut. 35th President of the United States John F. Kennedy proposes a joint U.S.-Soviet voyage to the moon as Johnny Cash releases his flaming hot hit, Ring of Fire. And last but not least, okay least, of course, we can't forget our old friend Elvis Presley. Elvis was recording his song, Viva Las Vegas, the title track for his movie of the same name that would be coming out the following year. Today's episode follows the story of another often overlooked woman in rock and roll history, a musician, a legend, Carol Kay, another name that you should all know, but if you don't, after this episode will be a name that you will never forget, since you most definitely heard and most definitely love many of the hits she's played on. Now, it may seem like we have a running theme here, as if our show was all about the forgotten women hidden behind the scenes who made rock and roll what it is today. Not like that wouldn't be cool or anything. However, none of this has been intentional. As I do my research, I look for the best stories that I feel are worthy of sharing. It's just been a coincidence that many of these stories have been orbiting around with a woman as the nucleus of the tale. Now, are the women left out of the history books because they've been oppressed by the big evil patriarchy of musical history? Maybe a little bit, but no, that's not what we're getting into today. If you've been following the show, you already know and you're well aware that it goes without saying that there are many often overlooked songs and stories throughout the history of rock and roll. So another subject we'll be learning about today is the group of fantastic studio musicians known by some as the Wrecking Crew. Most people probably haven't even heard of the Wrecking Crew, and if they have, they probably can't even name two of the players in it. But I digress. My point is that many musicians, just like the Wrecking Crew, have also been left out of the history books. But before we get to that forgotten crew of musicians in the pre-swinging year of 1963, let's bring the story on back to our main character today. And as we always do, let's fire up that time machine and head back to the year 1935 and find out who this fantastic musician and behind-the-scenes legend, Carol Kay, really is. Carol Louise Smith was born Sunday, March 24, 1935, the last of three daughters born to Clyde and Emma Smith of Everett, Washington. Clyde and Emma, who was known as Dot, a nickname from her middle name Dorothy, were a pair of professional musicians. Clyde, a World War I veteran who played in a military band, had just joined the Everett Musicians Union AFM Local 184 on September 10, 1917. His wife, Dot, did the same on December 17, 1927. 
Clyde was a lifelong musician and had a career that took him all over the place. He was a trombone player, and at one point he even toured the country with the vaudeville-era star Eddie, the King of Banjo Peabody. After his touring years, he began working as a pit musician in many of the theaters around the Seattle area. But by 1932, the Depression had hit hard, and the family found themselves running out of money and living in the more modest Lowell neighborhood of the Everett County area. Clyde had to take a regular job as a mill worker for a paper company to provide for the family, and by 1935, they moved. He took up a job as a night watchman at the port of Everett Marina, a steady job that came with a decent two-story house. It was right at the edge of Pier 2 on Hewitt Avenue. This would be where Carol grew up. She has said that the smell of the salmon was in the air right off the main pier, and she would traipse around the low-lying docks where all the private boats were moored. It was a very active fishing village, but sadly for Carol, there weren't many other children around. Well, except for the ones at the opposing granite building down the street at the end of Oaks Avenue where Longfellow Elementary stood. This is where she attended school. Back at home on the edge of Pier 2, the Smith family home sat overlooking the area. The home was a musical one, and their lives revolved around said music. Not only was her father Clyde a trombone player, but her mother Dot was a piano player who made her living at one point playing piano for silent movie houses. At home, she would practice by playing classical songs by Chopin, Cerny, riffing on pop tunes of the day, and brushing up her chops with her ragtime numbers. This brought great joy to young Carol and the family. Carol says some of her earliest memories was of her dad picking up his horn and playing while her mother chickered away on the piano. She said that she just sort of grew up around music. They were poor, but when music was played, you had a sparkle in your life. In his free time, her father Clyde played in a Dixieland jazz band on the side. He would often bring her along while he practiced. She would wait outside in the car where she could hear the sounds of the big band's music swirling through the air. She remembers being so moved by this music that all the hairs on her arm would raise up and give her the chills. On the occasional Sunday, the whole family would go down and watch him perform on a band stage in the center of town. She described hearing the music drifting through the air outdoors for all her fellow townsfolk as a little piece of happiness. By 1941, World War II had started and harder times fell on the Smith family. They sadly had to sell their piano and with the sale of that piano seemed to go all the happiness from their joyous musical home. Just after Christmas of that same year, the family quickly celebrated and then packed up their, all their belongings into a small car and started driving straight out west to Long Beach, California. Her father had just gotten a job as a foreman down by the docks in the next town over of Wilmington, California. The new start gave the family a glimmer of hope and promise. But unfortunately, with the lack of joy from their once musical life, combined with the stresses of the day, and more notably her father's opium addiction he picked up during his time in the military, it would all combine and drive Clyde to become angry and abusive towards his wife, Dot. It got so bad by 1945, young Carol had to help convince her mom to divorce her dad, which she did. The divorce ultimately led Clyde to skip town in order to avoid paying alimony. Carol, her mother, and sisters all ended up on welfare. The girls had no choice but to move down into the dingy rough-and-tumble slums near the docks in Wilmington at 1026 E Court in the Dana Strange Project. They made do with their situation, though, making friends with the nice Jewish family that lived next door named the Lebowitzes. Carol would also make a few friends around town of her own. 
And she would frequently go to the local theaters to watch cowboy flicks and musicals, which really opened her eyes to the sobering realities of the world at the time. Because before each movie, she would see the newsreels about the war effort. The war affected everyone, really, but for Carol and her sisters and her mother, the time was a grueling struggle. At only nine years old, Carol had to help put food on the table, so she began babysitting, scrubbing floors, and fixing things around the other apartments in their project. Anything she could do to scrape together a couple bucks to help out. This is the world where she really grew up. Carol personally remembers this time as being pretty tough. She didn't fit in at school at all and attended Banning High School, which at the time was full of different knife-wielding zoot-suit gangs. Her safest option was to keep to herself mostly and read books just to pass the time. She also had a stutter which didn't help her out much. She did well in school passing all her classes, well except for gym, and she said at this point in her life she just couldn't find herself at all. But then one magical day, as fate would have it, in 1948, a guitar salesman came to her neighborhood offering a few lessons if he bought one of his lap steel guitars for 10 bucks, which in those days was more than $100. Carol said being a stupid little kid at the time, she begged and begged her mom for one, oblivious to the fact that they were abysmally poor. However, her mother, God bless her, managed to pull together the money and got her two or three lessons. Carol had a natural knack for playing and quickly fell in love with the idea of being a musician, following in the footsteps of her parents, just as they were some time ago. As Carol now began to settle into her new life in California, a girlfriend of hers named Jean Blue began taking guitar lessons from some famous guy back over in Long Beach. The two decided that Carol should tag along to one of these lessons, but really it was to sit in and stealthily get a lesson of her own. She wanted to gain more musical knowledge from this famous guy, since now uh, she was becoming a player herself. The lessons were at a music store in downtown Long Beach named Maury's Music. It was located on 4th Street in Pine. The famous man was a musician named Horace Hatchett, and he toured with the likes of Jimmy Dorsey and Nat King Cole. After about the third lesson with Carol tagging along, Horace pulled Carol aside and told her that he knew she didn't have any money, but could tell that she had an interest in playing guitar. And that that was okay because he would offer her a deal. If she would help him teach some of his other students, she could do that in exchange for free lessons of her own. And of course, she agreed. Horace would teach her as they sat down and listened to records together. He would show her how to play along with the songs and write out the notes. Hatchet, or as she... Uh, affectionately remembers him as Hatch, would nurture the 14-year-old Carol and guide her down the path into playing music properly. He had graduated cum laude at the Eastman School of Music and passed on his knowledge by teaching her different scales, hand techniques, jazz licks, chords, and rhythms. Everything clicked for Carol and she excelled extremely quick, picking up all the skills in a matter of months. She was bringing home some money too. It was her new passion and it seemed like she was floating on a cloud. She had finally found herself at last. Carol was now completely into jazz music like Charlie Christian and the Betty Goodman Sextet. And as she sat around the store practicing guitar, many world-renowned musicians would come in and out like George Van Epps, Ray Pullman, and even Les Paul himself would stop by to visit and say hi to their old friend Hatch. Carol would absorb all the knowledge from everyone as they came and went. After a while, Hatch made another deal with Carol and said that she could have a beautiful Gibson Super 400 guitar if she agreed to stay and work with him for two years. She was in heaven. Of course she agreed. So now, at 14 years young, she had her very own guitar, the chops to play it, and this set her up to begin playing gigs around Long Beach. 
This would earn her some extra money too, and then she would take it back to her family. Two years later, after some time had passed, she eventually had Hatch's baby. He wanted Carol to put it up for adoption, but she refused. This caused a rift in their relationship, and her mother then took the love child to live with her more successful daughter out in Orange County. Carol's life had just radically changed, and her fondness for Long Beach began to grow stale. Wanting to venture out into the world and find new opportunities, she decided to move to Tucson, Arizona. Upon arriving, she worked with an aircraft company and would teach music in the evenings, eventually earning enough money to bring her mom and new baby out to visit and stay with her. Shortly after that, she began working for the Reynolds Company, and in the evening would spend time in town pursuing the vibrant music scene. By age 18, Carol met a bass player, violinist, who was a well-respected player in the Tucson scene. His name was Al Kay, and as you already guessed, the two quickly fell in love and got married. Carol Smith was now Carol Kay. However, Al was 22 years older than Carol and had a drinking problem. He was nice to her, though, and she really did love him. So now Carol was working to support her mother and her family of her own. This led the newly wedded couple out in search for even more work, and all the opportunities seemed to be out west back towards Los Angeles. So they said goodbye to Tucson and set off. Upon arriving in Hollywood, both Carol and Al found an open audition with a big band orchestra led by German-born jazz trumpeter Henry Busey. They both landed the job and Carol left her baby with her mother. The two married musicians were now living out a dream together, playing every night and touring the country with a real live group. Carol says it was a great time despite the two not making all that much money, but it was worth it to see the country and to play together alongside all the other amazing players in the orchestra. Of course, with the lack of money, the showbiz lifestyle quickly became tedious. The nature of the road then caused marital strife and the Kays inevitably got divorced. Newly divorced and back home, Carol began playing more local gigs. This time she found herself in the bebop club scene of Los Angeles, typically spending her evenings in dimly lit smoky bars, usually in the black neighborhoods, playing late at night with many different groups. She quickly became an established and respected player in the scene. She'd have to fight off drunks along the way and was surrounded by her fellow jazz musicians and a lot of their drugs. But Carol was never one to judge her counterparts and gelled in with the crowd. She managed to keep her nose clean by only drinking orange juice, and she would chat the night away with the people out front while her focus remained strictly on playing the music. By now, it was late 1950s, and the gigs were aplenty. She was back to supporting her mother and now three children, and as a result, was still poor. Carol had stated that even though her gigs were fun, the pay wasn't great. In the late 50s, a jazz gig paid about 15, 25 bucks, 35 max, but she loved it. She said back then, Los Angeles was thriving and had the aerospace industry where all the World War II vets worked, white and black together. Everyone had money, so they'd go out to the jazz clubs dressed in nice suits and ties and come out to hear real deal bebop jazz. She said people actually went out to just sit and appreciate the music. They truly enjoyed it. No light displays or showy gimmicks necessary. She was right where she wanted to be and quite content being a guitar player in these clubs every night. One of those nights, though, in 1957, her life would again abruptly change. While gigging at the Beverly Cavern Club in Hollywood with the Teddy Edwards bebop combo, a stranger with a peculiar name walked in the door named Bumps Blackwell. Blackwell was well known around town for overseeing the early hits of Little Richard and getting Ray Charles and Herb Alpert's career started. He was now working on Sam Cooke's. 
He had recently had a falling out with a guitar player named Rene Hall. Rene was playing one of the recording sessions for Sam, but because of a falling out, Bumps was now searching through all the jazz clubs looking for his replacement. Bumps wanted to find the right player who was competent and up to snuff. He walked in, took a seat, and watched Carol and the band perform. After the set, he approached Carol and asked her if she would like to play on a recording for Sam Cooke. She didn't know who Sam Cooke was and didn't really care. She wasn't really interested in rock and roll or anything like that, so she nearly shrugged it off, but then she figured there was payment involved, so it was another gig, so why the hell not? She needed any money she could get. She went into the first session and had a little trouble adjusting to the play style, but quickly one studio gig turned into two, and then two into three, and right around this time all the jazz clubs started closing down and reopening as rock clubs. Carol saw the writing on the wall and decided studio work was where her future would now be. She continued to record in the studio, and soon Carol had a demand. She would be requested to play on sessions more and more frequently. On one of these sessions in 1958, she was requested to play on two songs for another new, young, and up-and-coming teen star. The star, Richie Valens. The songs, Donna and La Bamba. Yes, Carol Kay played on rock classic La Bamba. So next time La Bamba comes on, I hope the name Carol Kay pops into your head and you can impress all the unknowing bystanders hanging around with the story of this amazing woman. Anyway, Carol insists that the intro riff was actually in fact played by Rene Hall, the man whose falling out with Bumps Blackwell was in part responsible for her becoming a studio player in the first place. But the rest of the song is her though, playing those chugging rhythms on the guitar. Both Donna and La Bamba turned out to be massive hits, and Carol was now a popular call-up for all studio rock songs that would follow. Including the slow, sad ballad written by radio DJ Tommy D about the tragic plane crash that took the lives of Richie Valens, Buddy Holly, and the Big Bopper. The song was called Three Stars, and the record was credited as Carol Kay and the Teen Airs. The 60s were now beginning. The first initial wave of rock and roll was dead, but the new age was starting with songs like the ones that were being written over in the Brill Building in New York. Carol was now the real deal, a big time studio musician. She was making good money too, and so were her studio mates that she would regularly play with. Her new mates were musicians of all types, who were also highly in demand just like she was. They all became fast friends and over time morphed into this loose collective, almost band-like. All the big producers of the day would call them up and have them play on their biggest hit records. And I mean big time producers like Phil Spector and Quincy Jones. This collective included so many players that it's just no way I can name all of them. But in an attempt to name a few, there were the amazing drummers Earl Palmer and Hal Blaine, bassist Ray Pullman and Jimmy Bond, guitarist Howard Roberts and Tommy Tedesco, and Tommy Tedesco is honestly one of the greatest guitar players of all time. I recommend you take the time to go look him up. And of course, Carol Kay. And that's just barely scratching the surface. And as a side note, I feel like I should point out that Bill Pullman specifically was one of the first bass players to introduce the electric bass to recording sessions. The instrument was somewhat still a new invention around this time. It was mainly used for live performance and bass players were still learning how to play the thing. Which is an instance that is unbelievably important for the history of rock and roll. So this group of players Carol got in with today is known by some as the Wrecking Crew. However, Carol Kay herself says that she'd never heard the name the Wrecking Crew when they were playing in real time and it was never used back then. 
And if anything, she said they were known as the Click. But even that's kind of questionable. It seems that drummer Hal Blaine was responsible for the rebrand of the group name, and it was in order for him to sell some books, which uh, I could be misreading this, but I think it kind of bugs Carol a little bit, which is kind of funny. But to be fair, without a cool name like The Wrecking Crew, many people may never have had the interest even to peek in and investigate this amazing group of talented musicians. The list of songs this click would play on is just a gold mine of massive hits. Songs by Jan and Dean, the Everly Brothers, the Righteous Brothers, the Ronettes, pretty much all of Phil Spector's wall of sound productions. It goes on and on. The Wrecking Crew was pretty much every brick in the wall of sound. And believe me, pick just about any massive hit of the late 50s, early mid 60s, and psh, you bet your sweet baby that's the Wrecking Crew playing on it. There are just so many songs, I don't even know where to start. You almost won't believe it. I'll post a link on the website or something uh, of some kind of discography. It's just a massive list. There's also a fantastic documentary titled The Wrecking Crew that I highly recommend you watch. It gives a fascinating glimpse into the click in their prime and goes in depth about how legendary they truly are. I'm sure it's all on the streaming services by now and I think it's even on YouTube with ads or something. I'll have it linked on the site as well. Please check it out. It is a must watch. So here we finally are, where our story actually takes place. 1963. One random day, as a bass player of the crew didn't show up for work and was marked as a no-show on the session, Carol Kay then got the call that would not only change her life, but would also change the course of humanity. She was asked to cover for him, and at first she was a little hesitant. Although she was a skilled guitar player, she never really played bass. She arrived to the studio just in time, and they immediately handed her an electric Fender bass. Summoning up all her years of jazz guitar knowledge, hearkening all the way back to her Maury music days, she grabbed the bass, picked up a pick, yes a pick, and then gave it a shot. And the rest is history. Fireworks then exploded everywhere. Rainbows shot out of the speakers. Angels were singing and shining their lights down from the heavens. Bluebirds entered the control room singing their songs. And a single butterfly landed on the mixing board. No, actually, she said it was difficult to get the hang of at first. But once she got it, she really got it. And it seemed like in no time at all, Carol Kay was now Hollywood's go-to first call bassist. Here's a clip from a perfect interview conducted by Barlman Speaks podcast. She describes the moment and her approach to playing the bass. And so, and so I did about five years on, on guitar with guitar hits, Dr. Shane and that, those kind of stuff, things, and so some rock stuff too. And then I, I, I played the 12-string guitar and the funny and share stuff for a while, and then it was bass. You know, the bass player didn't show up one time at Capitol Records, and so I picked it up and I thought, well, four strings, how hard would that be, you know, to play? So I picked it up and I started playing that and I could invent more on the bass, you know, and, and I felt that the, that the powerful role that the electric bass had back then, you know, now look, most people were doing it, bum, the bum, bum, the dum, and I heard bum, you know, that, those kind of lines. So I started playing those kind of lines, and, and they liked it, and I got the right sounds and all that. Uh, the bass back then was, was played with the pick on flat-wound strings because it got the sound, you know, and that's what they all wanted. So I did that and 
pretty soon, huh? instead of working just a few dates here and there, I, I was recording day and night, so there it was again. But, but the money was floating in like crazy, and I thought, okay, I could take care of my three kids, myself, and my mother just fine now, you know. So, I mean, so I, I worked hard. I never thought anything about being a woman or anything. They, they, they hired you to make a hit record. It didn't matter if you, who you are or what you were. If you've got a hit record for the, for, I mean, for the record companies, you were hired. That's from the Bartomania Speaks podcast. I'll have it linked on the website. So now Carol was in demand like never before, playing on TV jingles from everything from Alka-Seltzer to Wrigley's Chewing Gum. She even played on the recording of Disneyland's It's a Small World After All. She said when she was in the studio recording, she could tell a song was going to be a hit because the hairs would stand up on her arms just like it did back when she was a little girl listening to her father's big band play. She played on so many hits too. All styles. She played on everything from Howlin' Wolf to Count Basie, Marty Robbins to the Coasters, Little Richard to the Isley Brothers, the Kingston Trio to Paul Revere and the Raiders. I mean, everything. Everything, I tell you. Shall I go on? The beat goes on. The, these boots were made for walking. The birds and the bees. I'm a believer. She even played on the Mission Impossible theme. Hawaii Five O, The Batman theme. The Batman theme. When I say everything, I really mean everything. She even formed a friendship with the Beach Boys and the man, the myth, the legend himself, Brian Wilson, and he personally asked her to be the main bass player on the recording sessions for Pet Sounds. Man, I mean, I should just drop the mic right here. There's no way the show could ever just top this resume ever again. She's the most recorded bassist of all time, with over 10,000 recordings under her belt. Carol King is truly an amazing person and one of the most important and influential bass players of all time. With her background in jazz and signature grooving style, rock and roll's landscape was forever changed, and there's no denying it. It's a fact. It's amazing how people don't know the names of players from the Wrecking Crew and people just like the absolute boss legend Carol Kay. Was her name never brought to light because she was a woman? No, that's not the reason at all. Carol has actually said that she got along just fine, even though she was pretty much the only female behind the scenes in the 60s. She was always treated as an equal and looked upon by her contemporaries as a musician rather than letting her gender define her. She was just part of the crew. As her recording career subsided, popular music stylings were changing, so she turned back to teaching music. She also started a world-renowned publishing company that sold educational music books. Uh, and a series that taught generations of up-and-coming guitarists and bassists the magic of her ways. But then as the internet came out and people began to suck more, a bunch of Dumbo started pirating her books and so students stopped seeking out her lessons. She wasn't making any money and then she sadly lost her home. It seemed like she was almost right back to where she started, even after all she had contributed to rock and roll, popular culture, and the collective human experience. So when we wonder why or who is at fault for the reasons these people and names are concealed and left in the shadows, there's no one else to blame but us. Yes, us. There's no evil patriarchy. There's no conspiracy. Yes, the music business is a tough one, no doubt. But it's up to us, the rock and roll preservationists who believe, who know deep down in their heart, rock and roll is here to stay and it will never die. It's up to us to pass on the stories of these great players, make people aware of their names and their massive impact. 
We can't let these people be forgotten while the Biebs and Bilbo Eyelash take over the charts. I mean, Hal Blaine, an amazing drummer who played on just as many crazy songs as Carol Kay, ended up working as a security guard to make his ends meet, for Christ's sakes. I guess the lesson here is to take care of your artists and respect the people you care about. They add so much value to our lives, and we should at least have the decency to return the favor. If my incoherent ramblings, if I've managed to sway you in any way, I would like to point out that Carol Kay has her own website today, as in right now, today. You can go to her website, purchase some of her lesson books, her music, an autobiography that she will autograph for you. You can even take a lesson from the real life human being, Carol Kay, through Skype for like 75 bucks. I'm, woo man, I mean, that's worth every damn penny. We really got to give it to these players and thank them for all they've done for us, for all they've added to our lives and the world. Remember, it's up to us, nobody else. So next time you're at a barbecue or something and La Bamba comes on, tell your uncle or your cousin or whoever's standing by, tell them about the legend that is Carol Kay. Share the knowledge, share the love, share all those good vibes. So that concludes another episode of Rock and Roll History. I told you I'd be back. So go support Carol Kay. Go to her website. I'll have it on my website, www.rockandrollhistory.com. And in the meantime, remember to rock and roll! And slowly, little bit by little, then it got to be more more the boring rock and roll. (laughs) 